Happy Reformation Sunday. Reformation Sunday, maybe you're wondering. Well, Reformation Sunday is something of a holiday for theologically nerdy Protestants. You can uh, probably guess who one of those theologically nerdy Protestants might be. It's Jed. (laughs) Just a little new elder hazing, brother. Uh, Reformation Sunday has for, for many years now been celebrated on the Sunday closest to October the 31st. On October the 31st in 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. One of his goals was to instigate a debate on the abusive practice of selling indulgences, which was a a monetary form of penance. In the Reformation, there were two principal issues that were hotly contested. And to some degree, uh, the sale of indulgences disclosed those two issues. The first has to do with with merit, how we are justified in the sight of God. When it came to indulgences, if you paid a little cash, you could be given excess merit from deceased saints and so secure your salvation. No doubt my uh, Roman Catholic friends would howl at that description of indulgences, but it cannot be too far from the truth. For a celebrated and duly authorized town-to-town salesman of these indulgences had a great little jingle. Uh, Johann Tetzel went from town to town singing, When the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. He had others, too, like this one. Place your penny on the drum, the pearly gates open, and in strolls mum. Martin Luther and subsequent Protestants argued that this was contrary to the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons us of all of our sin and accepts us as righteous in God's sight. But only for the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is imputed to us, and we receive that by faith alone. We aren't saved because of the merit of some long-lost saint. We aren't saved because we bought some piece of paper. We're saved because Jesus bought us with His own blood and gave us His perfect righteousness. Now, if you don't think this is still a live issue, you're wrong. In 2009, Pope Pope Benedict authorized the sale of indulgences, and in 2016, Pope Francis did so too. They did so because they believed that they had the authority to do so. In 1546, at the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church officially condemned and cursed any who say that, quote, indulgences are useless or that the church does not have the power to grant them, end quote. In justification, how we are saved, that was the first issue of the Protestant Reformation. And the second issue of the Reformation had to do with authority. The church thought that it had the authority to issue indulgences. Did the church have that authority? What if the scriptures contradicted the Roman Catholic Church's authority? In fact, the scriptures do do contradict Rome's claim. So who had the final say of authority on earth? The Roman Catholic Church claimed that the Pope had the authority over scripture, but Luther and subsequent Protestants claimed that the word of God was the final authority for God's people. God's people were to submit before God's word, not subvert it for for financial gain. Luther's actions of nailing those theses on the door would eventually spark what is known today as the Protestant Reformation. We subtly celebrated it earlier in our service by singing Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. We also subtly celebrated by confessing that we believe what we believe about the doctrine of Scripture. This morning... We do not wish to study Luther or the Protestant Reformation, but we do wish to consider what happens when God's people hear and heed God's word. In 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23, we learn that when God's people hear and heed God's word, a reformation takes place. At least, that's what takes place under the reign of King Josiah. If you haven't done so already, please turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings, or 2 Kings as some people call it, 2 Kings 22. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 329. 329. 
As we turn our attention to 2 Kings 22 and 23, we must remember that the book of Kings chronicles a descent from the golden age of Israel under Solomon to Israel's division and descent into the grueling age of the exile. The message of the book of Kings is that despite the sin of God's people, God will still send His promised king. Though all seems hopeless in the exile, and though God was fully justified in sending His people into exile for their sin, He has not forsaken His promises to send His Messiah. In our study of First and Second Kings, we've, we've seen the kingdom's division into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. By the time we reach chapter 22, the northern kingdom of Israel has been carried off to exile by Assyria. Judah alone is left. And from this point forward in the book, we're looking at Judah's history. We're watching what happens with the people of Judah. Two weeks ago, we considered the, reign, the reigns of Manasseh and Ammon. In their reigns, we saw a reversal of righteousness. They reversed all of King Hezekiah's good and godly reforms. Their actions brought Judah to the point of no return. God would punish and exile his people for their rebellion and sin. In 2 Kings chapters 22 and 23, the text that we're studying today, we meet a young king named Josiah. He returns Judah to righteousness through reformation. He pursues many of the same reforms that Hezekiah pursued. And yet, this will not avert God's wrath against Judah. Josiah is not the king who will save God's people from their sins. Still, he shows us what that king will be like. And as we walk through these chapters, we ought to receive three exhortations from God's word. First, we ought to return to the Lord. Second, we should reform our worship. And third, we must rely on God. Return to the Lord, reform our worship, and rely on God. Those three points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Let's then turn and consider our first exhortation, the first exhortation we receive from the text. Return to the Lord. We, we see this, or receive it, in 2 Kings 22, beginning in verse 1, stretching to chapter 23, verse 3. But let's just begin by looking at the first seven verses of 2 Kings 22. And as we begin to read this portion of God's Word, keep a few things in the back of your mind. As we read, remember that we're leaving behind the rain of two evil kings. And consider the contrast that we now receive in the reign of Josiah. Beginning there in verse 1, 2 Kings 22. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah, of Bozkoth. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked in all the way of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshullam, the secretary to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen, who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hands, for they deal honestly. Well, these verses, they're a a wonderful breath of fresh air following the foul stench of the rains of Manasseh and Ammon. We are provided with Josiah's regnal formula there in verse 1 and his evaluation in verse 2. Josiah, whose name means something like Yahweh gives, was incredibly young when he ascended to the throne in Judah. This was sadly necessary as his father's reign was mercifully cut short after two years. Josiah receives an evaluation that mirrors the evaluation that Hezekiah received back in 2 Kings 18. Both kings, both Josiah and Hezekiah, we are told, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just like David their father. Both kings do not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the book of Kings, this means that they faithfully worshipped Yahweh. They did not go after other gods. And this evaluation reminds us of God's promise that He would raise up a son of David to sit on the throne forever. 
an evidence for the claim that Josiah was like David, that he's a, a man after God's own heart, is, is immediately provided in his repair of the temple. Like Hezekiah, Josiah provided, uh, like a previous king, Joash maybe, uh, provided workmen with the resources necessary to repair the temple. And, and clearly, under the reigns of Manasseh and Ammon, the temple, the place where God set his name, the place where God made himself known, his presence known, the place where God receives his worship, it had fallen into disrepair. This gives us some indication of the spiritual state of the people of God. You, you care for those things you love. You, you invest resources in the things you value. It's part of the re reason that we invest resources in, in our own building, in the repair of our own building. Because we, we value the teaching of the gospel and the help in discipleship that we receive when we, we gather together here. The people of God in Josiah's time wandered from the Lord. They went after other gods. And here through the, the simple act of repairing the temple, Josiah is beginning to take steps toward returning to the Lord. And verse 7 is immensely interesting, isn't it? Something similar happened in Jehoash's reign back in 2 Kings 12. Uh, there we're told that Jehoash also repaired the temple and, and really kind of blindly trusted the workmen because they were honest men. Let's pray and labor for this to be true of us too. May we, as believers in Jesus Christ, be found to be honest, diligent, and trustworthy. Brothers and sisters, let's labor in such a way that, that your boss can entrust you with work because you are known to be trustworthy and diligent and honest. During the midst of this work on the temple, something pivotal happened. You see there in verse 8, we're told that the book of the law was found. In all likelihood, it's either a copy of the book of Deuteronomy or perhaps even the whole Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Whatever the case may be, we're told in verse 10 that Shaphan um, read it before the king and observed Jos Josiah's reaction there in verse 11. You see verse 11? When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, and Achbor, the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book, to do according to all that is written concerning us. Josiah, we see here, was clearly moved by the reading of God's Word. Now just pause for a moment and reflect on your own hearing of God's Word. Are you ever moved by God's Word as you read it? If not, why not? In the, in the Old Testament, when a, a person, when they tear their clothes, they typically, they are, are visually displaying remorse and repentance over their sin. And Josiah is doing just that. Verse 13 makes plain that having heard the book read, Josiah recognizes that the people of Judah have not obeyed the words of the book. You see, the Bible, it reveals things to us. Josiah understood that the people of God were obligated to obey the words of God, interestingly enough, even though they didn't have the word of God. The word of God was, was lost. It had now just been found. But that doesn't mean that they were free from heeding God's word. No, they were obligated to obey it. Friend, if you're, you're here this morning, you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is true of you. Uh, this is part of the reason we read from Romans 1 earlier in the service. It doesn't matter that you've never read the Bible. It doesn't matter that you've never read the Bible, God's word. It doesn't matter, you are still obligated to love, and serve, and honor, and obey the God of the Bible. The God who made you and gave you life and breath. The truth is that you've suppressed deep down, you've suppressed the truth deep down, and you know that the God of the Bible is the God who made you, made the universe, made all that is in it. The truth that you've suppressed deep down and that you know is that you owe your entire life to Him. You are hearing God's Word read now. 
And you should respond like Josiah responds, with a, a, a profound sense of remorse for how you've rebelled against the living God. We have all rebelled against the living God. Josiah knows that Judah's disobedience has provoked God to wrath. And he is profoundly aware that judgment could fall at any point in time. Friend, are you aware that this is true of you too? What should you do? You should repent. You should turn from your sin and seek the Lord. That's what Josiah does. He he repents, he returns to the Lord. And Josiah, he sends servants to inquire of the Lord by a prophet. Prophets, we see, declare God's word. That was how you inquired of the Lord in that day. You, You sought a prophet who would tell you God's word. Today, we inquire of God's word. We we inquire of God by by reading his word, by reading the Bible. Josiah's servants, they they turn up at the door of the prophetess Huldah and consider her message there in verses 15 to 20. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, Because they have forsaken me, And have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, that means repentant, because your heart was penitent, And you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. Through the prophetess Huldah, Yahweh revealed that Jerusalem and Judah are destined for disaster. There's nothing that can avert God's judgment. But let's also be certain to observe that Judah's sin against God was personal. You see there in verse 17, God said that Judah has forsaken me. You see how personal that is? Any and all sin is first and foremost against God. Any and all sin is first and foremost a provocation of God's wrath. And because God is holy and just and good, He must punish any and all sin. When we grasp this, our hearts, I think, will be weighed down with grief, remorse, and sorrow. And the only way to lift that weight of guilt is through repentance, humble, heartfelt repentance, through returning to the Lord and recognizing His mercy in Jesus Christ. The Lord God recognizes when we repent and return to Him. He he recognized Josiah's uh, repentance in verses 18 and 19, didn't He? In His mercy, the Lord even forestalled, or we could say postponed, Judah and Jerusalem's judgment until after the reign of Josiah. Now notice, notice Josiah's response to the mercy of God in chapter 23, verses 1 to 3. See how Josiah responds. 23, verse 1. Then the king sent out, then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart, with all his soul, to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. Those who have returned to the Lord, those who have received mercy, 
will in turn invite others to return to the Lord and receive mercy. And that's precisely what Josiah does. He gathers everyone to listen as he read all the words of the Book of the Covenant that have been found in the house of the Lord. And note that word, all, again. He read all the words of the Book of the Covenant that have been found in the house of the Lord. The Bible of his day had been lost. And Josiah made sure to read those words of life to God's people. All of them. There's a, a sense in which, practically speaking, the, the Bible has been lost in the Protestant church. It's almost unfathomable that a movement founded upon sola scriptura, the Word of God alone, would sometimes care so little for the Bible. We, we have our physical copies, but we don't know what is in them because we don't open them and read them as we ought. A, a few months ago, I spoke with a chancellor of my seminary about the future of theological education. Uh, he lamented that more and more students are coming to seminary with less and less Bible knowledge. And he revealed that this was not just at his seminary, but at every other evangelical seminary he had had the privilege of going to in the past year. If there's one thing that I desperately desire for our church to be marked by, it's by a love for and engagement with the Bible. Please open it and read it. All of it. It contains a message of mercy for desperate sinners like you and me. Open it and read it when you have lunch or, or coffee with a fellow member of the church. Open it and read it when you have members over to your home. Open it and read it at, at every opportunity. I'm so grateful for how so many of you are already engaged in this. Keep going in reading the Bible with one another. Open it and read it at every opportunity. And here's why. Because the Bible calls us into a relationship with the living God. Josiah reads the book, which leads to a renewal of the covenant between God and Judah, the people of Judah. First, Josiah commits to keep God's commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and his soul. And then, what do you notice happens? Then all the people joined in the covenant. Christian, you're not Josiah, but the way in which God brings people to himself is through people like Josiah. Those who read God's word, who return to the Lord personally, and then read God's word with others and invite them to return to the Lord and receive his mercy. Christian, find someone who doesn't know the Lord and ask them if you can read the words of this book to them. Try that crazy thing. Just say, hey, would you, would you be willing to read God's word with me? Brothers and sisters, we, we need to be a bit like Josiah. Consider this too. Josiah, he knows that judgment is coming. The prophetess Huldah told him that judgment is coming. For Josiah, judgment does not lead to apathy. It leads to urgency and action. Brothers and sisters, like Josiah, we too have been told that judgment is coming. Listen to Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because, why? Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. Judgment is coming. Our calling as believers in Jesus Christ ought to contain a sense of urgency, as those who have received mercy, our calling is to proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Our life aim as believers in Jesus is to invite as many people as possible to return to the Lord and to escape the judgment, the wrath that is to come. Judah's return to the Lord began with Josiah's return to the Lord, which began when he repaired the temple and recovered the book. It is the nature of grace to roll on like a freight train and bring reform in our lives. And most fundamentally, in our worship. And that's precisely what happens in the nation of Judah under Josiah's leadership. This is the second exhortation we hear from our text. We ought to reform our worship. We find this in 2 Kings 
chapter 23, verses 4 to 24. This is our second thing we need to look at. For now, let's just look at verses 4 to 7. Here we see we have to reform our worship. Begin reading there in verse 4. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order, and the keepers of the threshold, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the hosts of heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. Now we, we just read verses 4 to 7, but the reality is that verses 4 to 24, they recount all of Josiah's worship reforms. And as we, we begin to think about this portion of our text, we need to remember that, that in one sense, all of life is worship. Uh, worship seeps into the, the nooks and crannies of life. T toward the end of this section, Josiah is even going to remove things from people's households. There, there are, yes, there are very formal forms of worship, but in another sense, every decision that we make can be traced back to who or what is receiving our worship. That that person or thing is either worthy of our worship, worthy of our attention, our affection, and our action, or not. The only person truly worthy of our worship is the God who made us. To reform our worship, both publicly and, and privately, both with God's people and within our own hearts, is to give God the affection, attention, and action that's due to Him alone. This is the call of 2 Kings 23, verses 4 to 24. We ought to reform our worship and so give God all of our attention, our affection, and our action. And just scanning our eyes across the, the verses we just read, verses 4 to 7, I, I trust you notice how often the temple or the house of the Lord was mentioned. Josiah brought a number of things out of the house of the Lord. And that's because they didn't belong there. They were objects idols and false gods from other nations. In verse 4, Josiah removed Canaanite or pagan vessels from the temple. In verse 6, he ground down an Asherah image. Josiah not only dealt with objects, he also dealt with people. Right? In verse 5, he deposed false priests. In verse 7, he broke down the, the live-in apartments of these male cult prostitutes. There were live-in apartments in the temple of God. It's astounding to think that these things were in and around the temple. In the first of the Ten Commandments, Yahweh made plain that His people should have no other gods before Him. In the second, God made plain that His people were not to have any idols. Since they had lost the law, they had forgotten that they had been called to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their strength. Deuteronomy 6.5 This is not all that Josiah did. In verses 8 and 9, he defiles the high places of Judah and deposes the priests who led worship there. There in verse 10, he desecrates a place of child sacrifice. In verse 11, he removed the worship of the sun. In verse 12, he breaks up Manasseh's altars. And then in verse 13, he breaks down Solomon's high places. In verse 14, he broke down the pillars uh, which were associated with the fertility gods and therefore sexual immorality. In verse 15 and 16, Josiah reforms extended out beyond Judah to a worship center in the northern kingdom. If, if that were not enough, verses 19 and 20 recount Josiah's reform, reforms reaching the former capital city of the northern kingdom, Samaria. It's frightening to learn that Josiah even put the priests of the high places to death. Why was he taking such extreme measures? Because he read the book of the law. You see, in Deuteronomy 13 and 18, Moses commanded the people of God to put to death those who led God's people astray and followed other gods. 
Skip down to verse 24. Set your eyes on verse 24. You'll see that Josiah also put away the necromancers, the mediums, household gods, and idols. Right? The reforms were not merely a public matter, but a private matter. This reached into the people's homes and hopefully their hearts. True reform reaches the heart. Now, why are we given all of this information? Do we really need so many verses to tell us about these reforms? Well, it, it seems as though the author is at pains to communicate just how thoroughly corrupt Judah was. And, and therefore, just how worthy of judgment Judah was. And just how thorough Josiah's reforms were. Josiah reformed Judah from top to bottom, from inside out. Nothing that competes with the worship of the one true God with Yahweh was off limits. Is there anything that's off limits in your life? Anything that you're protecting or keeping from reform? Anything you're protecting in your home or in your heart? True biblical Christianity will see a thoroughgoing reform in the lives of God's people. There's an episode in verses 16 to 18 that is important not to skip over. Look at verses 16 to 18 now. Read those verses. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things. Then he said, what is that monument I see? And the men of the city told him, It is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. And he said, Let him be. Let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. See, in this episode, we see a fulfillment of God's word from, I think, 300 years before. All the way back in 1 Kings 13. An unnamed prophet had prophesied, predicted that Josiah would do what he does here. But, but why mention this? Why, why does the author bring this up? To remind God's people that he always keeps his word. This, in turn, would recall the most recent prophecy from Huldah, who promised that God would judge Judah. God will keep that promise of judgment Two, still there's something more here. For in that promise, way back in 1 Kings chapter 13, verse 2, we were told that a son shall be born to the house of David. See, because Josiah is not that final son of David, because he's not the son who will save God's people from their sins, we know that he, in all that he's doing, is pointing forward to another son of David who will bring that final judgment. And there are several significant things that we need to grasp about Josiah's reforms and, and really apply them to our lives. The first is this. It's not enough to destroy false worship. It's not enough to destroy false worship. It also has to be defiled. Did you catch how often the author mentioned that Josiah desecrated or defiled something? This takes place in verses 4, 6, 8, 10, 13, 14, and 16. Why isn't it enough to simply destroy something? Why do you have to burn it, beat it to dust, and then cast the dust on unclean graves? Why is it not enough to destroy something? Why do you have to take the extra step and defile it too? Because idolatry and more sin more generally must be viewed for the immensely grotesque thing that it is. This is what we so helpfully prayed about earlier in our prayer of confession. Sin is utterly vile, ugly, odious, malignant, pestilent, pernicious, hideous, spiteful, poisonous, virulent, villainous, abominable, and deadly. Those are the words that the Puritan minister, Ralph Venning, used to describe sin in his book, The Sinfulness of Sin. Powerful meditation on the ghastly nature of sin. And perhaps you think those words, like odious, malignant, pestilent, pernicious, hideous, and so on, perhaps you think those words are over the top. 
But the truth is, as Venning says, it is impossible to speak worse of sin than it really is, or even as badly as it really deserves. By not only destroying these forms of false worship, but also defiling them, Josiah was showing the people of Judah what it looks like to take God's view on sin. God hates sin. He sees it for what it is. He sees it as appalling, disgusting, grisly, monstrous, revolting, detestable, gross, and loathsome. Do we see it like that? Too often, as we confessed earlier, too often we view sin as sweet. When in the end we know it's bitter. Too often we think too highly of sin. And even when we have a sense of remorse for our sin and want to repent of it, we don't take as hostile a view of it as we ought. There can be no reform where there is no resentment of sin. Perhaps part of the reason that we don't fight sin as we ought is because we don't hate it as we ought. We don't think of it or speak of it as though it were from hell and would destroy us if we did not destroy it. We forget that if we don't defile it, it will defile us. Children of God, we must wake up. Satan is coming for us through sin and its false appearance of sweetness. And true reform involves sitting in righteous, wrath-filled judgment on your sin. It involves taking God's view of sin. And Josiah is showing us what false worship, what idolatry, what sin deserves. It deserves the worst possible punishment and the most despicable description. Josiah shows us that idolatry cannot just be destroyed. It needs to be desecrated but he also shows us something else too. Josiah shows us that idolatry cannot just be removed. It must be replaced. Josiah began to show us this at the beginning of chapter 23 when he called the people of God to return to covenant with Yahweh. And in verses 21 to 23, Josiah, he renews the Passover, the worship of God. Read 2 Kings 23 verses 21 to 23. And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as is written in this book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel, or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. The Passover recalled the night in which Yahweh rescued His people from slavery in Egypt. On that night, the people of Israel hid themselves in their homes. They shielded themselves from the wrath of God by remaining under the blood of an innocent lamb who had been sacrificed for their sin. Do you see what Josiah is doing in reinstituting the Passover? He's reminding God's people of God's grace toward them in rescuing them from slavery. Verse 22 is staggering. In the canon, the last time the Passover was celebrated was all the way back in Joshua chapter 5. Josiah not only removed false worship, but he replaces it with biblical, true and biblical worship. Especially consider those words in verse 21. The people of Judah were to keep the Passover as it is written in the book of this covenant. The people of God could not worship in any way they wished. They had to worship according to the book, God's book. Worshiping any way they wished was what got them sidetracked and eventually landed them in idol worship. It's no different for us today. We must worship according to God's means and methods as He has prescribed for us in His Word. Friends, brothers and sisters, if we want a real and lasting defeat of sin in our lives, the love of Jesus has to crowd out idols. How might the love of Christ grow in our hearts? It grows in our hearts by the means and methods that God has prescribed in His Word, reading our Bibles, where He tells us that He loves us. Right? It, 
It grows in our hearts by praying, having communion, speaking with Him. It grows with fellowship of the saints who remind us that He loves us. It grows in our hearts by attending to the preaching of God's Word. Gathering to remember Christ's death and resurrection in the Lord's Supper and in baptism. In the ordinances. Take just one of those means. Take reading your Bible. When you read your Bible each day, find something to preach to your soul. So don't just read mindlessly. Just find something to cling on to and hold on to for that day. Preach to your soul. What truth do you need to hear that day? Maybe you need to hear Psalm 103.12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Or, or perhaps you need to revel in Isaiah 43.25, where God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Or maybe you need to meditate on this mercy from Romans 4, verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Find some truth in God's word as you, as you read and preach to yourself. Read in a way that will help cultivate the worship of God in your heart. And so crowd out the idols that tempt you. Reform the idol worship of your heart by repentance, uh, by a repugnancy towards sin, by a renewing of your mind with the very great and precious promises of God's Word. Our text offers us one final exhortation. In 2 Kings 23, verses 25 to 30, here's the exhortation. Rely on God. This is the third and final point. Rely on God. Uh, read beginning there in verse 25. We'll read verses 25 to 30 of chapter 23. Before him, this is of Josiah, before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Still, still, the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah. Because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah out of my sight as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem. And the house of which I said, my name shall be there. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did. Are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria, to the river Euphrates. King Josiah went to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. And his servants carried him dead in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in his father's place. Now there are, are several interesting features of these verses. For example, in verse 25, Josiah, he's given the same evaluation that Hezekiah was given of both kings, we're told, of both kings, we're told that there was no king like him. <laughs> right, so what's going on there? Which, which one is it? Right, how can we have two unique kings? I think if we get tangled up in that question, we're kind of missing the author's point. The point is that both Hezekiah and Josiah were wonderfully righteous kings. The, the point of this hyperbolic language is to exalt these godly kings in the minds of readers. Josiah turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might. He was a man after God's own heart. He was faithful. And with this heightened evaluation of Josiah in verses 25, verse 26 then comes as a punch in the gut, doesn't it? Josiah was wonderful. Still, the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath. Did Josiah waste his time? Why be righteous if he could not avert the disaster that was coming to Judah? Like, maybe you ask that question from time to time in your heart. 
Right? Why be holy when it seems to make no difference at all? Why be holy if God's not going to bless me? Why act righteously if others are going to go on in their unrighteousness? Now, some of you have asked those questions out loud. Others have not dared to proclaim what you've pondered in the secret place of your heart, but but you've asked that question too. Why be holy when it seems to make no difference at all, when it won't change the outcome? Well, the whole question is wrong-headed, isn't it? The point of obedience is not about what we can get out of it. We don't obey, so God will pay us something. That's fundamentally pragmatic and selfish. It it inverts the creature uh, creature and creator relationship. It makes God our servant when He made us His. We don't obey so that He will turn the United States around. Or bring it back from the brink. We don't obey so that God will heal our marriages. We don't obey so He will relieve us of our addictions, grow our bank accounts, save our children, or end our afflictions. That is to make the point of obedience all about ourselves. It's narcissistic when God is the point of our obedience. The point of our obedience is to proclaim God's honor and worth to the world. In obedience, we show that we are not in charge, but that God is, and that we can rely on Him. In obedience, we show the world that God is worthy of faith. In obedience, we show the world that God is worthy of trust. In obedience, in our pursuit of righteousness and holiness, we show the world what God is like. In obedience, we tell the truth that God has a right to be served. And that it is our duty and our delight to serve Him. In obedience, we show the world that God has already given us more than we could ever repay Him in our obedience. Josiah does not obey so that he can spare Judah of judgment. That's not his role. He was to be faithful and to rely upon God in the short life that God gave him. He died in battle. In fact, he died at the famous place called Megiddo, from which we get the word Armageddon. Some have thought that Josiah's death in battle makes Huldah a false prophetess. In 2 Kings 22.20, she promised that he would be gathered to his fathers, that he would go down to the grave in peace. I think the best way to understand that, best way to understand her promise, is that because of his humble repentance and reliance upon God, Josiah and Judah with him would not face the judgment of exile during his lifetime. I think that's expressed in her words. Josiah teaches us to rely upon God even though the storm clouds hover and won't depart. But these verses also teach us to rely upon God in another way. They teach us to rely upon God's sovereign hand over history. Right? The people of Judah put Josiah's son on the throne because they know the promise of God that he's going to bring a son of David to the throne who will one day rescue them from their sins. In Josiah's name, we're reminded that God gives. And the first readers of this book had to trust that God would give another king like Josiah, a king who would not merely spare God's people from the threat of an earthly exile, but from the threat of an eternal exile. Josiah teaches us to look for a king like him, a king who would not simply repair God's temple, but who would be God's temple. Josiah teaches us to look for a king who would not seek after God's word through a prophet, but who is a prophet and in his person the very word of the self-same God. Josiah teaches us to look for a king who would remove idols from the hearts of his people, not just from one nation, but from people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Josiah teaches us to look for a king who would bring the Passover to fulfillment and inaugurate the new covenant in his own blood as the Passover lamb who was slain for the sins of God's people.
Josiah teaches us to look for a king who would not just go down to the grave, having been slain in battle, but rise up in victory over it, over sin and death. The New Testament teaches us that this king has come. Jesus is the true son of David, the temple where God's people worship, the prophet in the likeness of Moses, the word of God, the Passover lamb, the victor over sin and death, and the one who will come to judge the world at the last day. Friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want you to invite you to come to Jesus, to trust him today. You need Jesus. You need to return to the Lord because you have wandered away from Him. You've filled your life with idols and sin. You've rebelled against, the, against God, the God who made you, and you've decided to live your own way rather than His. And you're not alone because we've all done this. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says the wages, the cost, the payment that's due to sin is death. We all deserve to be eternally exiled from God's loving presence. And while Josiah could not spare people from judgment, Jesus can. Josiah couldn't bear the curse and punishment for sin because he wasn't sinless or perfect. But Jesus is. You can rely on God because he has kept all of his promises. He has sent his one and only son to live the perfect life that we've not lived. To die on the cross, the death that we all deserve. And to be raised from the grave for the forgiveness of sins. Grieve over your sin. But then give your trust to Jesus. This is ultimately what it means to rely upon God. 2 Kings 22 and 23, they exhort us to return to the Lord. To reform our worship. And to rely on God. And all of this is centered on His Word. We know the only way back to the Lord is through His Word. We know, we we only know how to worship and how our worship ought to be reformed through His Word. And it is God's Word which tells us why we ought to rely on Him. Because He's proved Himself over and over again. Because He's trustworthy and keeps His promises. At the end of the day, the Protestant Reformation was a Word movement, a Bible movement. The centrality of God's word had been lost. And so the Protestant Reformation was the recovery of the word of God among the people of God. Which led to a fresh embrace of the gospel of God. Because the Protestant Reformation was a Bible movement, there was something called the Further Reformation. In 1647, 130 years after Luther nailed his theses, the Dutch reformer, Jodocus van Lodenstein, wrote a devotional in which he used the phrase... Ecclesia reformata semper reformandum est secundum verbum dei, which means the church reformed and always being reformed according to the word of God. Van Lodenstein and the reformers knew that the lives of God's people always needed further reformation, and that real reformation only comes in connection with the word of God. We need this more than 500 years after Luther. We need what took place more than 2,500 years ago under the reign of Josiah. We need to return to our God with genuine repentance each and every day. We need to reform our worship by giving up our sinful idols and giving Jesus our worship, Jesus alone our worship. And we need to rely on God and His plan for history. For our great king will soon come again. Let's pray together.